Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary VTW, void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details welcome everyone to ness and dormer extra time I'm Mike Gibbons, and I'm in the unusual position today of uh, chairing one of our podcasts for the very first time. So regular listeners will know, Extra Time is where we jump outside of what we normally do to take a broader look around the world of football, and particularly football writing. And we've got a special guest with us today. Those of you who, like us, orbit the world of uh, retro football will probably be aware of David Hartrick. He's the impresario behind the brilliant independent sport publisher, Ockley Books. Uh, was involved with the Colts website, uh, In Bed with Maradona, and has had his hand in numerous podcasts that I've enjoyed down the years, uh, to pick a couple of examples of Football Fives and the Styles Council. Uh, he's also an author, uh, previously written 50 Teams That Mattered back in 2012, and he's now back with a new book called Silver Linings, Bobby Robson's England, and it's available right now from Pitch Publishing, and that's what we're going to be chatting about today. Uh, David Hartrick, hello, how are you doing? That was quite a that was quite an introduction. I hope to live up to that. It sounds when you see it, when you hear it laid out like that, it sounds like I've done a lot. <laughs> well, you, you've certainly had a more storied uh, story career of football writing than me. So, uh, yeah, how you doing? How's it going? Yeah, yeah, very good, very, very good. Very always sort of excited to talk about the book. Really, I'm still, I'm in that stage where it's part excitement and part terror that people are sort of reading it and it's out there now for the wider public but yeah I, I'm more than happy to talk about Bobby Robson at the at a moment's notice. Yeah I've, I've been in that hinterland between being published and the, the reaction so I, yeah I know how you uh, how you feel so um, yeah I mean, so I've been aware of um, you know what you do with uh, you know football writing and podcasting and everything for about a decade now I guess and from what I've seen, read and heard from you via all the various mediums you work in, you've got a really obvious and genuine affection, I think, both for Bobby Robson and this particular era of the England team. So it's, it's there's an opening question I'd just ask. Is this the book that you've always wanted to write, would you say? Um, yeah. It, it, I, when I first sort of came into this world, I didn't really know 
what I wanted to do. And I had a lot of uh, sort of disparate pieces that eventually came together as my first book, which it's not that I'm not particularly proud of, but you, your first work is never your best work. And I look back and there's a, you know, I would edit that book to death. Trust me <laughs> now. Um, this book is a sort of almost like a collection of 12 years worth of thoughts and things I've wanted to write down. And it wasn't just a chance to write about Bobby Robson, who is um, somebody I have a huge affection for, um, but who was no, you know, the, the book isn't a hagiography. He was, he was flawed in, in several ways really, but what he was was he was just a sort of complete gentleman and one who loved the job, tried his hardest, um, and just came up against an unbelievable opposition, as we'll probably get into a little bit. And it, it, this era also led me to fall in love with Diego Maradona, with Paul Gascoigne, with Rude Hullet, with Gary Lineker, with Marco Van Basten, uh, Lothar Mateus, various others. And this book was a chance to try and write about as many of them as I possibly could <laughs> um, in and amongst the narrative of the England team over this eight years. But also I maintain that I, we won the World Cup in 66 and obviously everybody knows that story. When you, when you go back and watch that World Cup, that's not the greatest ever England team by any stretch, I don't think. Um, there are reasons we won that World Cup, which I sort of go into a little bit in the book, really. Yeah. But this time, this eight years, just so much happened. So much happened with Robson, with Mexico 86, with the collapse at Euro 88, with the sort of joyous finish of 1990. But there was also some spectacular games and memories in and amongst all that lot as well it it was a real it's just a really really storied time in england english international football and i think that's i think that's probably why i'm sort of still in love with international football and maybe there are a few generations now which aren't because this this, this was a roller coaster an absolute roller coaster and when you've experienced that sort of high, <laughs> you can't help but be a little bit in love with it. Yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary era, isn't it? I mean, on the pitch and off it as well. I mean, we'll, we'll come on to a lot of the socio-cultural stuff that was going on around the same time. So it's that you and I are of a, a similar age. And uh, so Bobby Robson was the, was the England manager from when I was four years old till I was 12. So all through my formative youth, he he was just this constant, basically. It was Bobby Robson's England. And yeah, on the pitch, you saw things, you know, Barnes in the Maracanada, you know, the hand of God. And then obviously that, that psychodrama in Turin in 1990. It's, yeah, it's a quite extraordinary expanse of time. And you, and the fact is you, you just don't see England managers get that amount of time in the job. No, and, and not against the... Not against the sort of overwhelming opposition either, because no. they they first you know they were gunning for him from the off really, um, but they did they did try to give him a chance. But I mean, by nineteen eighty four, the Sun were handing out their Robson out cloth in mm. badges at England games, and there was 
there was a bit of a pushback to that, to be fair, from the sort of pundit class and uh, some of the broadsheets and, you know, various other managers. Graham Taylor gave an interview where he was, he was ironically extremely scathing about that. But I think one of the things you have to sort of understand how remarkable it was is, uh, I mean, again, without skipping forward, but by the time you sort of get to the end of 1988 and into 1989, the 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 press, the only way to describe it really is it is, you know, an attack. They mm. are desperate to, to get their own way. And one of the points I make in the book is they, the tabloid papers at the time, they prided themselves on setting the agenda and, you know, making or breaking careers of politicians, um, stars, etc etc the fact they couldn't get their man was was driving both the front and back page newsrooms absolutely mad because the fa the fa could only fight so many fires and they had enough on their plate and robson was just belligerent he just dug in and he wanted to turn it round he wanted to turn england's fortunes around particularly after 1988 and I you can only admire him for that because I just I, I think it would have been so easy to just collapse under the weight of that pressure. So if we um if we pick up from the so, so the very start of the book it starts with a lovely long chapter about the the history of the England team right up until 1982 when Robson actually takes the job. Um, can you just talk a bit about what Robson was walking into? when he started that job yeah it the the england management was a very it was a difficult position to say the very least because mm. I, I go I, I obviously i go into it in quite a lot of detail in that chapter but the the first england manager walter winterbottom really didn't have much he, he had a say to an extent but you know he, he didn't pick his squad he didn't pick his side um, he was he was in charge of training, but often that was picked apart and belittled. And then Alf Ramsey comes in with this sweeping promise that he's definitely going to win the World Cup, which he does. But then his sort of force of personality really sets him against the press. Um, and by the time he leaves that job, um, he's basically fallen out with everybody within the FA and everybody in the, the press across the country. Then you have Don Reeve's time in charge where he came in and he wanted to sort of build some bridges, but very, very quickly it became clear that this wasn't Leeds United's Don Reeve. This was a very different version of that manager who was struggling to get his management ideas across to squads in the shorter term format of international football and then he just drops a massive hand grenade <laughs> by um leaving essentially aided by the daily mail because he engineers his own exit having seen Alf Ramsey um basically be pushed out decides he's not going to do that and it's it was actually the Jeff Powell, the Daily Mail journalist, who delivered his uh, resignation letter to the FA headquarters, but only after all the the front pages have been committed to print. So Reevy leaves in this this real like maelstrom behind him, and 
the thing is, from that point on, the England manager's job becomes this sort of slightly mythical role because of its its significance in the newspapers and how it's seen and how you suddenly become a surrogate for almost the entirety of English football. And Ron Greenwood was was a very he was a very he was a very nice man by all accounts. <laughs> he was um his job was to come in and just try and help with some of the debris left behind and to try and soothe things over. But he quietly, very cleverly, he enacted his own change really, which doesn't really get enough credit for which he was the first person to come in and start putting some succession plans in place and he restored uh b team internationals which were actually incredibly important at the time because you didn't have the structure of youth international football that you do now and he got robson in um who was a bit of a company man with the fa anyway had helped out with all sorts over the years and groomed him really over that time to step into that role. When Greenwood announced he was going after the World Cup, there wasn't the sort of wild speculation. There was still the push for Brian Clough that there had been for, I mean, the better part really of, of 12 years. But everybody knew that Robson was getting the job. It was it was no real surprise. And he was coming into a squad that was too old that was too set in its ways um, and needed really evolving into something completely different. And he was coming into a uh, world with the press where his he was going to be scrutinised for every last little decision. And if he... I mean, dropping Keegan from his first squad, if he, had, if he didn't understand what was... <laughs> yeah. what was expected of him before he dropped Mick Mills and Kevin Keegan from the first uh, squad to go to Denmark and it was just an absolute uh, Keegan had a, a ghost written column he'd just moved from the mirror to the sun which was quite a big news story in and of, of itself um, and he like he put together this piece with his ghost writer where just I'll never play for England again and they've They've treated me terribly, and <laughs> and to be fair, a lot of the reaction in the press, um, again, I go into it in a book. A lot, of, a lot of reaction to that in the press was, "Well, Keegan needs to get back in his box, really." But it was a huge national news story, yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it, it when by the time Robson gets that role, it, it genuinely is not only the sort of biggest job in, in English football, but it's one of the biggest jobs in England at that point. Um, that's that's not a sort of over-exaggeration to say that. Yeah. So having made those big calls, uh, Robson, then, so his first task is to try and qualify for the 84 European Championship, um, which ends unsuccessfully at the hands of Denmark. And do you think he was lucky to survive? Um, that Because if you, if you think about it now, I mean, you know, Steve McLaren, Graham Taylor, even Alf Ramsey, it either left or were sacked after, you know, failing to qualify for a tournament. And um, do you think straight out of the gate like that, he was quite lucky to survive? I think he was. I think he was saved by a couple of different things. Really, I think over the the course of that campaign, it wasn't successful, obviously, but there were a couple of moments of the the three nil victory away in Greece was 
a performance that England hadn't put together for quite a few years, which was mm. they they didn't ride their luck, but it wasn't a it wasn't a complete performance by any stretch. But Robson had been forced to play a a, cup, a, a younger side, um, and they'd put together a sort of one your definitive England away performance, which is just to try and play on the break, stay solid, and and get something out of the game but there was there was also there was there was enough sort of green shoots of recovery that they could see in what he was trying to do with the squad that he was worth sticking with but also you, this, this was the start of the real this is where hooliganism was coming to the fore i mean as mm. you as you know you know a thing or two about those games against denmark but his very first game you know england fans had just run riot during yeah. the day and in that campaign, there was also a pretty disgraceful um, away game in uh, Luxembourg, I think it was. Is it Luxembourg? Yeah, I think it was Luxembourg where England fans were were pretty terrible. Um, and I, I think the FA, again, I, I know I've already said it, but they really were at a point where I, I just think they could only fight so many fires at once. Yeah. And... They didn't know how to deal with the hooliganism at the time. They were still, they were still just apologising and not actually doing anything action-wise. And yeah, there was there was an awful lot going on. But I think he was also aided by the fact that Danish side was so good. I think if if anyone in the press could have made the case that England definitely should have gone through and they were by far the best team in that group, I think it might have been different. But both those games against Denmark, they were just so impressive. I mean, when you read back through the match reports, they're just everybody who writes about the Danes was just so incredibly impressed with them that I also think that helped him. I think that helped a lot, actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So yeah, we we went over those games in the um, in the Danish Dynamite book, and uh, yeah, I mean, you did get some reaction from. I think it was the son that called him a clown or something like that yeah. after, after the one 0 defeat at Wembley. But I mean, generally that was an exception. I mean, across the board, it was accepted that that Denmark were a rising force. And also, I wonder—I don't know if you agree with this—but um, I think the Euros was viewed quite differently then mm. than it is now. And you know, it's a quite exclusive eight-team tournament. It seems to have a different weighting when put next to the World Cup than it does. Now, I mean, they don't have parity now by any means. I don't think, but um... I think the, I think the thing is that I think England's record had been so poor up until that point. Mm. Um, I think what really had scarred England mentally is is the the first one they went into after after the winning the World Cup. Yeah, and they got they got kicked out of the game against Yugoslavia and got a man sent off. And it was just an incredibly unhappy experience. Mm. And then you had the the famous game against Germany, West Germany um, at Wembley where that had really done for Alf Ramsey more than anything else, where they just seemed so far apart at that point. It was like they were, you know, it was like West Germany were just playing a different sport to be frank. But England's relationship with the Euros was just a really, really unhappy one, um, and I think the it's it's now in terms of summer tournaments, it's so hyped up, and you've got the sticker albums, and you've got the 
previews and every paper and you've got websites who are writing thousands of words before a, a your ball had been kicked it just wasn't quite like that you just didn't have that hunger for the euros like you did for a world cup um so yeah i do i do think there's something to that but i think it's also worth saying that the sun's campaign was basically based around the fact that brian clough wrote for them mm. um and and had always uh, done brilliant business for them, to be frank, because Brian Clough being Brian Clough, he was never afraid to criticise people and to produce, you know, a brilliant line or two for them. So they were absolute uh, Clough devotees. It, it, their campaign was less about Bobby Robson being England manager and more about Brian Clough not being England manager, if that makes sense. It It doesn't yeah. really matter who would have been in that role or what the results were, they still wouldn't have been happy that it wasn't Brian Clough. Yeah, I mean, that's an incredible spectre to have hanging over you while you're, while you're trying to do your mm. job. Um, well, one, you know, a back-to-back European Cup winning manager, but being backed by this news organ that's got this enormous circulation. Um, I mean, that that's... Did you ever get the sense that that got to Robson at points? Or? Uh, yeah... Yeah, um, reading when you when you sort of read across the breadth of of everything, you could uh, and watching his interviews post game and various other interviews, y- yeah, you could see there was there was a genuine. It was Clough that got to him really, and Alf Ramsey because Alf Ramsey treated him incredibly poorly. Mm. Um, I think Alf Ramsey's issue was that not only had Robson become an Ipswich legend um, after Alf Ramsey felt he had essentially laid a lot of the groundwork, um, then Robson gets the England job. And I think Alf Ramsey just took great umbrage to, to Bobby Robson on a few levels. And yeah, I do think the cluffing got him, but Robson was very, very good at staying focused and just throwing himself into the work and just forgetting everything else i mean it often came at the expense of other things as i said this book is not about saint bobby robson because Mm. he wasn't he made mistakes and the other side of it is i do think there were legitimate criticisms in that first couple of years I, i i do think he i think there were several squads where he um picked one or two that through loyalty that he probably shouldn't have done, I think he needed to look. He needed to cast his net far wider. There was a bit of a reliance early on with some of the sort of Ipswich players that he trusted, basically, and it was he was on a learning curve himself because I don't I don't think at that point anything could really prepare you for the England job, yeah, and and what went with it. So. Yeah, but the the spectre of the sun basically hung over him for the his entire time in the role. It's not like they ever really gave up on the fact that they didn't want to be they didn't want him as as manager. And the mirror when the circulation war, the sort of tabloid circulation war really kicked in, the mirror were very very quick to realize that one way to get huge numbers and huge engagement as it was back then was to kick the England manager. So they mm. had they had Nigel Clark basically just writing hit pieces whether England won, lost or drew. Um so 
yeah, but those, those first couple of years were a real learning curve, I think. Yeah, and it well, it's kind of impossible to write about this era uh, without touching on the the state of English football and just the state of you know British society in general. I mean, yeah, you've mentioned hooliganism already. Um, you know, a blight through that decade, and in, um, we would see connected to football as well some just awful, devastating tragedies around the game. Um, and uh, in 1985, uh, there's, there's a couple of um, you know, terrible examples of that. And yeah, you don't flinch from uh, in painting just how bleak that that time was. It was a particularly bad year, 1985, and in in the context of this story as well. Um, when the Heisel ban came in, uh, the England team, it was very precarious uh, from what I've understand from, you know, research on things that I've done that, that, you know, they, they very nearly went in the same uh, breath as well. You know, there, there was a real chance that they could be, you know, kicked out of the World Cup qualifiers or not go to Mexico 86. Um, so yeah, how, how, I mean, obviously it was difficult for Robinson, but how difficult for Robson was all of that and, you know, how, how do you think he managed all of that? Because as the figurehead of the English game, that's a tremendously difficult thing to have to deal with. Uh, there's a there's a few different eras of him dealing with it. Um, early on, I think he would be the first to admit that he didn't handle it brilliantly. Some of the, I mean, you mentioned it in Danish Dynamite. Um, some of the language he used was slightly incendiary around playing for England is like fighting for your country yeah. and various other things. And Robson was always very extremely patriotic. Um, but he, he believed in a sort of, there was, there was an inherent sense of Englishness. There was a sort of set of English values and he began, uh, sort of apologising as everyone in the FA did, but without really a, a being able to affect anything. And then by the time 1985 comes round, which is... I mean, the, the terraces were just... Were, I mean, they were a war zone, to be frank. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had riots at a Chelsea-Sunderland game. You had the very famous Milton uh, Mill-Luton game, which was just horrific. Um you had the Birmingham Leeds game, which teenager Ian Hambridge was killed, wall collapsing on him. You had the Bradford fire on the same day, which was down to the fact that the ground was so sort of poorly designed and the upkeep wasn't great. So it was that was another issue, the, the poor state of the grounds that was allowing things like an away following just to surge through a ground and fight their way through a stand because the segregation was so poor so then you have a sort of era in the middle where all he can really do is just apologize and he he was just repeatedly apologizing because what else could he do there was literally people dying at football games and like just after high school you've got that really interesting situation where England were actually playing a little uh, three-team tournament over in Mexico as a as a World Cup warm-up, basically, yeah, the year yeah. before. And one of the teams they've got to play is Italy. And he was he was pretty good in the press. Um, and the English FA were pretty good as well, sending out the, the English players who were based in Italy to, to talk very well about it. Um, 
and the the way that that game was slightly farcical because the English players, I mean, they they just they weren't even claiming for fouls or throw-ins. You know, they nobody mm. dared say anything. But then after that, you move into an air, an era where Robson starts to get angry about it, and there's a marked change in his tone. Um, you know, he, he refers to them as he he's very very keen to make the separation between the the England what he feels are England fans and the hooligan element and by the time you get to 1988 where the England fans were a disgrace at those euros um he he's just openly calling them idiots and yeah. completely dis- disassociating themselves them from the England team so he's had these different eras but also he was he was acutely aware of the racism in the game, um, and he was a, a real, a sort of an underrated pioneer, really, for getting black players into the squad and into the team. Um, and he he knew there was a real issue with integrate integration, and he was appalled in 1984 when the. National Front had paid for a group of supporters to go on the South American tour and even ended up in the same plane as the England squad abusing England players. He was, uh, yeah, he, he, but again, there were so many fires to fight in this decade, it was just untrue because English football was, was it wasn't just the violence. There was, a, like I say, the stadiums were decrepit in, in some cases. Yeah. There was a lack of money. There was fighting over the television rights. You know, domestic football wasn't on television for a year, was it? And I mean, <laughs> you can't even begin to... I mean, just imagine that situation these days. It's just, you can't even begin to understand it. So there was just such a lot going on that he was he was constantly... There's a real sense in the middle of the decade of him just trying to keep as many plate spinning as he possibly can um whilst also trying to actually focus on the thing he is actually in charge of yeah which is the english international side and i think mexico 86 was a really big thing for him because not only did the the english fans behave relatively speaking and what I mean by that is they basically were nowhere near as bad as everyone was was thinking. But also that England team basically go on a narrative arc through that tournament. And I think that helped him enormously. It really put a fire in his soul. Yeah. Um, and it was just it was just a great tournament, Mexico 86, on every level, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the first World Cup I remember, um, Mexico 86. I would have been, yeah, eight years old and... That summer we got a video recorder, so I, I taped, you know, lots of the games, and I taped the Denmark six Uruguay one in the middle of the night, and that's what got me obsessed with that team. But um, yeah, the progress of England, as you say, is like a real soap opera of a tournament, wasn't it? And it's just you know, fall into pieces early on, um, and then you had the the, the great launch of uh, you know Gary Lineker who went on to win the Golden Boot, and then in, mm. you know, the very last act they get undone by you know chicanery and genius in that that really highly charged quarter final um it's yeah but i think it maybe suffers a little in the shadow of italia 90 um mexico 86 and the robson story but i think you you bring it to life really really well in the book um you know they weren't that far off this england were they I don't no think. they they really weren't they 
you know, again, he made mistakes. I think he he completely underutilised Barnes. I mean, you saw what a difference he made when he came on against Argentina, and mm. that was his first minutes in the tournament. But they they tried to... They didn't get the preparation right, is the long and short of it, and then things went against them. So the, the Portugal game, the, it, the heat was just obscene, basically, and they hadn't prepared correctly for it. And... They lose that game with a goal late on, but it's it's actually quite funny watching the game because you realise on an hour that just nobody in a, in an England shirt has just got anything left. Yeah. They're all just desperately shuffling around the pitch. Just you, you. In, to be fair, you can just see nobody wants the ball. It's yeah. just like don't pass to me. And then the next game, the um, Morocco, isn't it? This is the next game. Yeah. Is the nil-nil where really things just nothing really works, and Robson needs to to alter the side, change the system a little bit. They have the team meeting that Terry Fennick is convinced he was was his gladiator <laughs> moment, but mm. I don't think that was the case. And then they get the difference was with the Poland game is they scored early, and that bringing Beardsley in and that partnership with Lineker and getting that early goal really did completely alter the arc of that tournament for them and the Paraguay performance is is actually it's a really really good performance I mean Paraguay I've rarely seen a team more cynical in their approach it really is quite shocking watching that game now I mean if you if you played that game the same way now I I honestly honestly think you'd be looking at a (laughs) Sheffield United situation I think you genuinely Paraguay could have about five red cards (laughs) Um, but yeah, the Argentina game just created this sort of real sense of both both artificial and real injustice. And what I mean by that is obviously England were cheated out of the World Cup to an extent because it was a handball. But at the same time, there was other factors. The second goal was, uh, again, I say in the book, I think that's where you can really see the hand of God in the mm. second goal. And England had laboured in the first half. They tried to kick Diego off the park. Mr. Fennick again had picked up a picked up an early yellow card, and he should have gone. Really, um, there are a lot of factors, but it gave the press a sense of manufactured injustice that they could play on. And suddenly, England were the the briefly could be the fallen heroes, the the downtrodden, you know the. Yeah. Poor old souls who had given everything and been cheated out of it, and while that wasn't quite right, it did change their fortunes. And I, I think that was part of the problem with Euro '88 because that art created such a massive expectation then for a tournament that England hadn't really focused on before, because everybody just went, "Well, they should win it. Yeah, they'll de- they'll definitely win it." And yeah, well. The wheels came off, <laughs> to say the <laughs> least. Yeah, that's, that's a lovely summary of that tournament, and um, it it felt as it ended. I think it just got this, I don't know, just this real sense of frustration with England. You know that they, they could have gone further in that. I mean, I've, I've I've seen that game back a number of times now. The you know the Argentina game, and um, overall, I think Argentina were the better team. And even if you take the hand of God out of it, I think. I think you know that they would still go through, but um, they they did manage to resurrect that World Cup, and they they didn't come out of it with any 
um, real blame blame on the squad or the manager. I don't know. And they also came out of it with a bit of a bounce because mm. because they the first game afterwards was the usual September friendly, which there was a real I don't know, there was a real blind spot in for for Robson and for that squad. They they were always awful in the September game. Absolutely <laughs> dreadful. But then after that, they put together the the they the run in the European qualifying where they were absolutely brilliant. It also there was the friendly away in Spain where England win four two, Alinica scoring all four. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen that game, but I mean England were really, really good. Yeah, really, yeah. really good. And you've got the the very famous Yugoslavia four one away in that qualifying campaign, which was that game was on at tea time over here. And I yeah. remember coming home from school to see it. And that first half an hour was incredible. <laughs> Absolutely incredible to see them just sort of blow them away to that extent. Yeah, I tried to explain this to someone once. That it, it was a bit like um, that kind of 10 minutes against the Dutch at Euro 96 where you just yeah. like, what's happening here? <laughs> Because it's, you know, qualification was in the balance. And I, I remember running home from school for that as well. I think it kicked off at like four o'clock, didn't it, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, legged it home. And then, and yeah, the game was done. And, and I had a goal disallowed and all that as well. I think. <laughs> you know, yeah. It could have been... Um, and a lot had been built up as well about um, it's a terrible place to go and mm. England are going to basically have to hold on for, for dear life to get through. And... They were just brilliant, and I mean, Robson says that was that was one of his highlights. I think Terry Butcher in his autobiography said it's the best game he's ever played in. Yeah, um, and I, I'm not surprised. And there was a real, there was a good feeling around that England side that mm. there was at this time, and it was perhaps that was perhaps why the sort of fallout from Euro '88 was quite as bad as it was because. England were genuine favourites going into that tournament, which sounds bizarre when you look at the format of it and who they were up against. But hindsight is a beautiful thing, really. Yeah. And Robson had got a sort of very settled squad at that point with a very settled spine of players. But yeah, just it all went wrong. They are caveats for it, which I make in the book, but it, it really couldn't have gone much worse on all or off the pitch, to be frank. Yeah, I remember it's 86 up to that tournament. That was a time of what, just like real promise, I think, for England. As you mm. say, he had a settled side, he had a settled squad. I, I remember the first qualifier after 86, I think it was Northern Ireland, wasn't it? It was the 3-0 yes. at Wembley. And um, I think John Motson says on the third goal, or the Beardsley Linica combination works again and... It just became apparent that, that this is a thing. It wasn't just something they found that worked for the World Cup. You know, it would be a long-standing thing. And then, you know, Beardsley and Barnes were going to have that great um, you know, season with Liverpool in 87, 88. And it, uh, it did really feel like they were building to something. Um, but, yeah, Euro 88, I mean, this is... Um, yeah, the way this fell apart. I mean, it's, the, it's still the only time England have lost all three group games uh, in, yeah. a, in a major tournament. I just I don't think an England manager would survive that. Um, no, uh, but again, I think there is an element of the same thing from before because mm. England's fans were 
were just, I mean, it was disgraceful, absolutely disgraceful. The thing is, there are moments in time, um, even within the book, where I can make a case for the fans in terms of it was nowhere near as bad as was being described. The yeah. tabloids had latched onto the fact that blaming football fans and having hooligans cross the front page sold them newspapers. But Euro 88 really was a uh, a real low point because there was a huge element of, of English fans who were there for absolutely nothing to do with the football. And circumstances had put them in Germany, who Germany had a huge element who wanted to take England on, um, and against the Dutch, who were uh, very revered for their hooligan element as mm. well. And the fact that things then go wrong on the pitch to the degree they do, I think, is also a factor because I think within that element, then they feel like they have to prove something. And I mean, it was just full scale rioting, really, for for 10 days <laughs> it it really was as grim as that uh yeah i mean it was shocking that uh at, at the kind of age i was i wasn't that aware it's more like looking back on it now you kind of the the scales fall from your eyes and you realize well for me anyway just exactly what went on there but um yeah just awful really and then yeah and and yeah on the pitch as well i mean it just um it fell apart for England. I mean, that that opening game with the Republic of Ireland—that's such a such a seismic defeat, isn't it? I think, and it kind of, it kind of mm. set the tone for the rest of it. And then they have that great showdown with, um, you know, the Netherlands in the second game, which is actually a game they were really, really unlucky in. Actually, yeah, they were. They, that's exactly what we're going to say. The thing about watching that Netherlands game back is that England were really, really good. Mm. They were actually really, really good, and they, you know, Hoddle hits the inside of the post for that free kick uh Lilica misses a not quite an open goal but certainly a very very presentable chance early on it was I, I think a I think a fully I think a fully fit England would have won that game mm. um and but they there were just so many issues in that team losing Butcher was absolutely massive Butcher yeah. was such a huge presence in that England squad and in that England team, losing him to a broken leg before, and and he should have been back. Um, they essentially misdiagnosed his his break, so they were treating him for a fracture that they thought would heal, and his fracture was in a slightly different place, and it, it made a huge difference and kept him out of the tournament. But then you've got someone like Kenny Sampson, who just literally in the space of six months just seemed to lose all of his pace. Yeah. And then you got as you just said, you got Barnes and Beardsley coming off the back of I mean I, I think it's fair to say one of the greatest seasons in English football by any club. Mm. Um it would they Liverpool were absolutely incredible and Barnes and Beardsley had like scored a third of the goals between them and I think they got a third of the assists between them. And they'd both only missed one game. Um so they were they were to be frank, they were absolutely knackered. <laughs> and then you had Waddle coming back from a hernia, which he was nowhere near fit enough, really. Um, you had Trevor Stephen being kicked out of the warm-up game, which meant Waddle had to play and there was nobody else who could come on for him. And then you had the, the Lineker um, 
not knowing what was wrong with him, but knowing something was, and obviously the illness, everything came out afterwards. It was just a, yeah, it was just a nightmare. But it was also the sort of last experiment with Glenn Hoddle. He yeah. never played for England again, and Robson had. The problem with Hoddle was you had to sort of continually shoehorn him into the side, and the game. As brilliant as he was, and there are England games where he was absolutely outstanding, but the game almost had to be built for him to thrive, Um, and Mm. tournament football doesn't work like that. (laughs) Tournament football is about adapting and finding a different way, and... That that Dutch game, he was he was pretty good. He was pretty good, but he needed the players around him who could could basically raise his game, but also read him properly. Um, and yeah, it was it was there were reasons for it, but I mean, it was a, a catastrophe to be frank. And the fallout from that was pretty epic when you read back through it. I mean, Robson gets an awful lot of grief and he, he mm. did he did ask the FA, do they, you know, do they want him to resign? Um and they categorically said no. And I think again, I think there are reasons for that. I think the you have to take into account the what was happening in terms of the fans. I think you have to take into account they knew the World Cup was coming up and that yeah. felt more like potentially a natural end for Robson anyway. Um, and the other thing is, to be frank, the candidates around weren't brilliant at that time. Uh, the press liked Howard Kendall, but he had absolutely no interest at all. He, he never once posited that he'd like to do it or <laughs> agitated <laughs> to do it. He even gave a couple of interviews specifically for the purpose of saying that he didn't want to do it. Clough was not the Brian Clough. I mean, even the Sun couldn't couldn't hide the fact that Brian Clough was not quite the force that he was mid-70s, mid to late 70s. And beyond that, it was all... Graham Taylor was repeatedly mentioned, but he was he was still relatively early in his career at that point. Terry Venables didn't want it at that point. He was quite happy doing his doing his own thing. So it's it's not like if they'd have sacked Robson, they would have had this great swathe of applicants. And like Jack Charlton was one who had applied for the job every single time, but now even he yeah. had his <laughs> had his <laughs> role and was was happily ensconced over in Ireland. So I think that was a big factor as well. I think if there'd have been somebody out there ready made, I mean, the Mirror even said they should give it to Brian Robson, <laughs> which yeah. when you think about Brian Robson, who at that point was still in the in the peak of his playing career, that's just an absolutely crazy suggestion. But again, you know, beyond that, you were looking at sort of a young Joe Royal or Ron Atkinson, who was as behind closed doors. There was a lot of questions being asked about various things in regard to him. Yeah, there just wasn't a great. There weren't a great choice. So it was really a case of well, we'll stick with <laughs> we'll stick with what we've got. Um, but by the time year eighty eight finishes, by the time they go and that nonsense friendly over in Saudi Arabia at the end of the year, which with a really really scrapped side, um, yeah. he got done over there because clubs were withdrawing players left, right, and centre, and they get this terrible one one draw. And I mean, 
I make no bones about it. It was absolutely terrible that game. Yeah. The the reaction to that game though, reading through the newspapers when I was when I was doing the newspaper research for that, it's I mean, it just feels like another world, mate. It, it <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. Like you got <laughs> you got one newspaper publishing Stan Boardman and Bernard Manning's ten best Bobby Robson jokes and yeah. Just out outwardly saying he has to go, and the tone, the viciousness, the the personal abuse within the pieces, and yeah, it was pretty grim at that point. Pretty grim to say the least. Yeah, I mean, it got incredibly toxic. Um, and, until I read this, actually, I'd, I'd forgotten just how quite how you know, toxic it got at points, and it was. Um, you know, you need incredibly broad shoulders to be able to survive that. I think. And a, a quick word on sort of Bobby as a character. I mean, he's he's always come across so so well. I think whether it's in you know like all played out or in in more than a manager. And one one thing I've always loved about him is that he inspires incredible loyalty in people, like particularly from his players. Mm. Um, what is it about him you think that draws that kind of affection and loyalty from people? Not just players, but you know, fans as well. I mean, he's 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 so revered um, within the English game, isn't he? I I think he was um, he was fantastically loyal, which I think for some players was was everything. To be frank, I think they were they knew he was a lightning rod for criticisms that could have been legitimately levelled against them. Yeah, and he never once. Mourinho'd them, <laughs> never once turned on them, um, and he was one of the things that's underrated because everybody's got a favourite Bobby Robson story, um, and it's always about him forgetting someone's name or yeah, doing yeah. something wrong or something along those lines. But when you read um, a lot of what the players said about him, he was an absolutely fantastic motivator in the dressing room. He he could really get a side up for it. And I think that goes a long way. And also, to be frank, he was willing to turn a blind eye as to, to players who were performing on the pitch. He was willing to turn a blind eye to to some of their what we'll call eccentricities, yeah. which helped in terms of relaxing players when you brought new players in to the squad. But also, I just, it's weird because everybody talks about how much they loved Robson for what a gentleman he was. Mm. And the fact that he was actually a really, really good football manager almost gets a sort of mentioned as a separate side issue somewhere down the line. But he was a really, really good manager. I mean, what he did with Ipswich was, was to be frank, was extraordinary. Yeah. And he was a really, really good England manager as well. He knew he lost some key games, but he also won quite a few. And his his record over that period of time, I mean, it stands up against pretty much anyone. Um, and I think that he had a force of personality that just made him sort of incredibly magnetic for for certain people. They just people just liked spending time with him. But he was also just an incredible gentleman. He didn't hold a grudge. You know, he could he could turn around and there are several players that say in their books that when when he turned around and he did have a go at them in the dressing room, if they'd had a bad game or made a mistake, 
it really, really sunk home with them because they knew he wouldn't do that in public or in the press. So they knew they really had had a stinker, you know, for him yeah. to finally go, for him to finally lose it. And I think there's something in that as well. You know, we've, I hate to mention them again, but you've seen Mourinho sort of managed <laughs> by fire and not knowing any other way. I think Robson was sort of living proof that there was another way, really. Um, but yeah, I do think it gets lost just how good a manager he actually was in truth. But that that run up to um, nineteen ninety, really up to Italia ninety, was England put together some very sort of stoic performances. But it, that's that's really what it was. It was very very stoic football. It mm. wasn't it wasn't great. Um, but then he was sort of fortunate enough to stumble across David Platt and Paul Gascoigne, really, who who were the two players who, for me, changed the course of of that summer or what would what would go ahead that summer. Yeah, I mean, there's some there's some incredible characters that Robson orbits around in this book in terms of players. You know, it's, you know, you go into depth about you know with uh, Kevin Keegan at the start, and you know. And Lineker and Shilton and Brian Robson, you know, these huge figures from mm. English international football history. Is that one thing I think everyone's fascinated in is his relationship with Gascoigne, this kind yeah. of, you know, paternal bond he has with him. I mean, how did uh, how did you see that? I think the th- I think the thing about Gascoigne was <sighs> Robson fell head over heels in love with him. I don't think there's any other way to describe it really the the first time he saw him in an England shirt was at a, a Toulon tournament game where Gascoigne took a quick free kick and scored uh, up and over the wall completely caught uh, I think they were playing France completely caught the French side cold and it was just so different from anything else he, mm. he had at his disposal but as much as he fell in love with him he also knew he was a uh, just a hand grenade of a footballer. Um, there were his first red card from Newcastle. He he went down the tunnel and absolutely, you know, kicked everything in sight and smashed the door. He could be completely anonymous in certain games and end up lashing out. And yet he just had these genius moments, and that that's what they were. They were they were genius moments, and. I think Robson was very, very nervous of putting him into the England setup because he had it. I think Robson had a huge sense of knowing what was coming in Gascoigne's future. He knew, he knew the talent that was there, mm. and he could see the pitfalls coming long before Gaza could. That's that's the reality, and I think with with Gascoigne, he's a player who we all know played his best football when he felt loved, when he did have that sort of semi-paternal figure looking after him. And I think in in Robson, he really did have a father figure that turned a blind eye to, to certain things, asked him to do certain things and pushed him pretty hard, as hard as any of his other managers had, certainly, but also had a real genuine affection for him. And just you know, there's, they spent a lot of time together when they were on England duty, and that 
those that sort of those two games. So you've got the there's the Brazil friendly in 1990, which was like Platt's audition, and David Platt was was brilliant in that game, and yeah. that gave Robson a, a a massively different option in that squad going forward. But then you've got the Gascoigne game against the Czech Republic in April, where I mean that game is just seared into my brain. I I mean Gascoigne would just otherworldly that was joyous isn't it yeah he he was the the ball for the steve ball goal the first goal where he just out of his feet looks up outside of the boot Mm. is just the most un-english pass i had ever seen in my life at that point I, i and i remember genuinely thinking that i've never seen anything like it and He'd had his cameo against uh, Albania where he'd come on and he'd driven Robson mad because he'd played everywhere, but where he's actually supposed to. But the Czechoslovakia game proved that he could do a different job and be a bit more disciplined and play in a different way. And it just gave England just a massive X factor going into that World Cup. It just... It was so nice to effectively have a bit of an unknown. Mm. <laughs> um, but I think Robson was just acutely aware that the, the story was always about Gascoigne. I talk about his year leading up to 1990, and he'd already sort of broken his arm in one game, uh, fallen out with Brian Clough in another, um, completely bossed a game up at Old Trafford against Man United. He was never out of the news. The story was always about him, and I think Robson was just acutely aware of that um, and knew what was coming. But I think we're quite lucky because we saw Gascoigne play at his best, and it's it's quite difficult to explain to people how good he was because of what happened afterwards and what certain people remember. But this sort of period... Uh, this 1990 and 1991 Gascoigne I mean he was untouchable at times absolutely untouchable and yeah I, I, I will never stop loving him for that sort of 12 to 18 month period really where he was he was just sort of everything in English international football yeah there's a point in that Czechoslovakia game actually where, where he goes through to score his goal and he, you know, he jinks to the side in the box and puts it into the roof of the net. And the, the camera cuts to Bobby Robson on the bench. And you can see him mouthing the words, that's fantastic. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. wagging his finger. That's to me, I kind of feel that's where Italia 90 kind of starts for me, I think. Because I just think you couldn't leave Gascoigne out after that no, kind of no. performance. And, and I think that's also the moment where Bobby Robson realised he could manage him, though. Yeah. Which is important. I think that's that genuinely i mean that sounds quite dramatic but i genuinely do think that's the case i think he he realized at that moment what he could get from gascoigne and how to get it um and it it challenged him in that game he made it very very clear that effectively it was an audition mm. you know he told him you you need to if you don't play well here you're not coming um so to get that response from him and yeah, that that I do actually mention that in the book. That moment is one of my sort of great. <laughs> it's one of my desert island football yeah. moments. That it it genuinely is. Um, but I think the other thing about Italia ninety is that it was it wasn't a great World Cup by any stretch. I mean, we we eulogise it for highly specific reasons. Mm. 
And I think the fact that Gascoigne stood out like he did in the tournament was because there was a lot of, not average players, but there wasn't many Gascoins in that tournament. Um, and yeah, as I said, it's it's almost impossible to tell people how, how good he was or how different he looked. But the moments I always come back to in the game against the Netherlands, the Cruyff turn, which again was just so un-England-like, and the, the snarling over Rude Hullet after hmm. the tackle, where Rude Hullet had, had previously played very, very well against England on more than one occasion, including running the show hmm. at Wembley. And to see an English player just sort of snap and snarl at him, it, it reminded me, the only thing I can equate it to is, do you remember was it, um, the away game Man United played in the Champions League, AC Milan, when, is it Gattuso? can't remember who it is, but he just basically just takes them out and just has a little snarl over the top of them just to let them know who. Oh knows. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that it, that's that's as close as I've seen since that moment. So we're coming to Italia ninety. Then I mean, it is the kind of I don't know defining World Cup of our respective youths, I suppose. Um, it means an enormous amount in so many countries in the world, but in England particularly, it's got a tremendous emotional pull to it. Particularly that whole, you know, the psychodrama of that semi-final in Turin. Um, you know, your book crescendos here. Can you can you talk a bit about why why Italian is, is just so important in the history of English football? Um, I think there's there's a few different aspects to it. I think in 1989 you get the Arsenal-Liverpool game after Hillsborough. Um, And that game is so significant uh, in terms of making, making English, making authorities believe that there was something worth saving in English football and convincing TV executives and various other people there was a future. And Hillsborough was a huge moment for the fans. It was a, a real line in the sand where there was an effort to try and reclaim football fandom um, from from what it had become. So Italia 90, again, is this sort of lightning rod for a lot of societal issues, really, where the English fans were singled out, shoved on an island. Um, everybody said they were going to cause trouble. Everybody said it was going to be all about them. Everybody said it was going to be just like Euro 88 to be frank mm. and again the fact is they they didn't behave as badly as anybody suspected they would there was there was a couple of incidents but they really weren't that bad and instead you actually had a bit of a movement where they tried to make it about the football again and you have them trying to be a little bit more of a force for the team and a bit more of a force for good. So obviously in that semi-final, you have the 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 poll tax banners coming out, the anti-poll tax banners coming out, and hmm. they're just there was a shift in mindset. Now what helps that enormously is England go through another narrative arc. So they they start poorly against Ireland, um, but reviewing that game and watching that game again i completely get why they started like that they they were they were still haunted by euro 88 and they just wanted to get out of that game with something 
you yeah. know, a, a point, a, a win or a draw was fine. They just had to get something from that game. And then the Netherlands game and the sweep system comes in, etc. They were just, they just played with a freedom. They just, you could tell something had shifted and the shackles were off. And they had a Gascoigne who was, again, he was a bit of an X factor. And then that sets them up for the sort of to play against the weakest team in the group. They win one nil, and that was a tough watch. That game, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't recommend anybody goes back and watches that game for any reason. But then, obviously, the next three games really go as dramatically as it's possible to be, which is a, a hunt, you know, last minute of extra time winner against a Belgium game, and that was a pretty pulsating game that that was a pretty back and forward game um and belgium are a really good side and if you win with the last kick of the game that is absolutely the best way to win then you come again up against the sort of the side the story of the tournament in cameroon and it's a 3-2 and they go 2-1 up and again, it's extremely dramatic. You go to extra time. Gascoigne is the difference because he just goes up a gear. Um, again, just a sort of brilliant way to win that game. And then you go into the, the game against the Germans, who were categorically the best team at that tournament. Oh, yeah. By miles. And you do everything you possibly can. I mean, that that's the one England performance that I can look back and genuinely they left absolutely nothing uh, you know to, they they gave absolutely everything they had mm. at the end of that game everybody in that england side is just absolutely shattered absolutely shattered and they they had taken on the best team in the world and drawn with them and could have won um quite extraordinary really looking back on it and it was the sort of tabloid, one of the tabloid's oldest enemies because of the way the tabloids think. And they've sort of gone toe-to-toe with them and and lost by whatever you think about penalties. But you, the tabloids could make the case that, again, there's a sort of sense of injustice from it somehow. So mm. you've earned redemption. And that's that's really what Robson had, had earned um, and the England team had earned. And you, you've also got to bear in mind that they, they'd had to ban the press at one point because of the story about the hostess. Bobby Robson, on the day they flew out to this tournament, had had an absolutely furious press conference because they'd brought up a load of lies about his personal life again. Uh, it really was a sort of siege mentality that they'd adopted to get through it. And the players did rally around the manager. They They had had enough of seeing the manager... Um, take everything on the chin and yeah it, it wasn't always pretty but they again it was just about having those you've got the Belgian game the Cameroon game and the West Germany game and all three of those games are a story in and of themselves and that just just helped enormously with that redemptive arc and the third place playoff nobody cared about <laughs> Nobody remembers that game really, or how bad England were in it, because we were actually genuinely terrible in that game. <laughs> um, but so yeah, it's one of the things I talk about in the book is that they they when they come home from that World Cup and they're just mobbed, um, and you have you know anything up to half a million people, depending which report you read, 
on the streets greeting them. The idea that that would be the scenario at the end of the tournament when England flew out was frankly, it was absolutely laughable. Yeah. Nobody would have, would have even countenanced it as a suggestion. So it, it was, I think probably the, the greatest turnaround of mindset in, yeah. in the shortest space of time in English football history. I really do. And it was, I, I do maintain without that sort of, um, redemptive arc I don't think you get to the point where you have the Premier League as it is and various other things it it really did it really was a before and after moment for football it was the time when enough was enough and it, it football decided to reclaim itself yeah I just that summer I mean it was I mean it was incredible to witness live I think as, as you say to go from the, the point where it started to the point where it finished. I mean, there's a vague similarity with Euro 96 in that that kind of started off a, a bit acrimoniously and then ended up. But once you get a momentum going in a tournament and once you start getting everyone going with you, which I guess the England players wouldn't have been that aware of um, out in Italy, you know, without the kind of mechanisms we have now to, uh, you know, tap into what's going on back home. But that, uh, I mean, you're right, that run of knockout games, all going into extra time, all with these kind of gut-wrenching swings in them that you normally associate with games of, I don't know, heads-up Texas Hold'em poker, um, <laughs> almost being out of it against Cameroon and then, you know, clawing it back. And and the fact, I think, that Gascoigne was so integral to the whole thing, that the, the deeper England went in the tournament, um, you know, everything... It felt like everything in, uh, good that England were doing was centred around him. And I think that's part of the heart-shattering nature of that booking he gets in the semi-final. I think there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a little documentary that was on something called Gold TV um, in 1994 called The Crying Cry Game, I think. And uh, Kevin Allen, I think, who made a documentary about that tournament, he, he says in that that it, it wasn't that you thought, oh, is there no point? There's no point going to the final, but he thought, God, can we do it without Gascoigne? Yeah. And, you know, losing Gascoigne at that point, or potentially, you know, there was still a potential final on then, was just because uh, there was so much emotional investment in him, I think, across the whole country. And that, and that, and you saw that in the kind of outpouring when they returned home to Wooten. And it was, uh, yeah, it really was extraordinary. It, it was. I. <sighs> I think, again, I don't want to be that guy that says, unless you were there, you don't understand it. But it it really was like a moment in time um, because Gascoigne came back as just this, I mean, for some people, he was like a messiah figure. Mm. <laughs> he really was. I mean, it, like everybody had that T-shirt of Paul Gascoigne crying, that photo of him, mm. for months after. And he was... Every game he played was first on match of the day. <laughs> Everything he did was scrutinised. I go back to that Wogan interview where Wogan says to him, you know, it, it could turn out to be a nightmare. I think the pressure that was on that young man was just extraordinary because for 18 months or so, he was basically carrying the weight of the entirety of English football expectation. But he had also been so good and so different and had his own arc within that tournament. Yeah, it, it's... I think the other side of it is 
it's the the it was such a big news story, wasn't it? It was mm. football being good news to that extent hadn't happened for so long, for so long because the front pages had just been continually about hooliganism, violence, cities left in ruins from English fans, Hillsborough, Highsall, riots that there was finally a sort of good news story and that was absolutely massive too and I think that that was a huge factor in English football's what happened over the next five to ten years Um, but it's very weird to go back to that whole time from, from 82 to 1990 because by the time you get to I don't know United winning a treble in 1999. The change in English football, it like seismic, doesn't even yeah. come into it. I mean, it's just it's a completely different animal. It's a completely different thing. The the thinking behind it, the way everything is set up, the way the international side is looked at, it's just it's so far away from where. 1990 was yeah. that it is it's untrue and i think one of the things that i wanted to try get across in the book and i've i've written the book literally going through year by year because so much happened that i just wanted to get across to people just how different this was for people who've been raised in the premier league era to understand that before that there was this world where it was English football was just on fire for about five years. It's quite extraordinary. And Italia 90's place in the healing of that is absolutely sacrament to me, absolutely massive. And that's why you get people like us who do eulogise what was a pretty average tournament <laughs> overall. Uh, you, you know, it was. There were some absolutely stinking games at that World Cup. Um <laughs> But it will always be special for those reasons because it, it wasn't just about the football. That's not necessarily all that that World Cup represented for us. Yeah. So um, just, to, just to finish on something, um, if, I, if I could just read a little excerpt from um, the final chapter of your book, which which I really, really like and I think encapsulates what the whole book's about, really. Um, you write about Italia 90, um, uh, it's the quote, uh, the fact is England should not have won it. The Germans were better, but Robson's side doing what they did was enough. This country wasn't ready to win another World Cup. I think that's a really that's a really interesting and refreshing take on Italia 90, I think. So a, a lot of people dwell on Italia 90 and they lament the fact that, you know, we, we were a shootout away from the the final. But I think I think that 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 um that short excerpt there, I think, is I think absolutely nails it, and I, and yeah, I can I can see why you called the book Silver Linings. Mm. Um, I I just think it's a perfect little summary of you know why that summer was so important and, and why it doesn't really matter that England didn't win. Yeah, well, I I just confirmation that we were the best in the world at anything at that time would have been disastrous mm. in my humble opinion. What what really needed to happen was we had shown there could be something else there could be a different future football wise but also there was there was 
we had to grow and we had to learn and we had to change and we had to adjust. Now, I know people will go, yeah, but we still haven't won a World Cup. Yeah, but you can go and watch England in a very nice stadium that is completely safe, not be uh, bombarded with racism, um, not have fans rioting, watch an English football that is now in line with what the rest of the world is doing um, because you didn't there was a real reticence to 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 change and evolve it was England didn't play a 4-4-2 and I think 4-4-2 gets maligned fairly uh, well I think it gets maligned unfairly really on reflection but even just sort of evolving to have that sweeper system and playing in a different way was highly significant because one of the things that had marked previous England managers was a refusal to do anything different and to play in a in an English, in an uh, inverted commas way. So I think that actually winning the World Cup genuinely would have been disastrous, but what what that defeat left was the room to grow and the room to move on. And uh, it it was genuinely enough at that point in time. It was enough, mm. and I think if we'd have won it, I I don't think we'd be where we are now. To be perfectly honest with you, I think we'd be we'd still be behind everybody else. If I'm brutally honest, yeah, I completely agree. Um, yeah, well that that's fantastic though. Thanks very much for taking the um time to come on today. As I say, uh. Silver Linings, Bobby Robson's England, uh, out now by Pitch Publishing. Uh, I've read it and I honestly, I cannot recommend it enough. It's just a absolutely fantastic overview of, as we've discussed, you know, eight mammoth and sort of seismic years of change in English football, uh, brilliantly captured by our guest today, David Hartrick. So uh, just to sign off, Dave, quickly, where, where we, can we get, get the book from? Uh, everywhere and anywhere <laughs> it's a, available in all good and all bad as they say um and pretty much everywhere online now um mm. and it's in as an ebook as well i think the the ebook was launched a week after the print copy mm. i think so that is now officially out there yeah. so yeah hope anybody who does buy mm. it on the back of this enjoys it and uh anything else coming up from you or anything else you'd like to uh yeah, well, we're, I'm going to uh, I'm going to roll on and and do a book about Graham Taylor's England. So, if you do enjoy this, keep your eyes peeled for yeah. not more of the same because it's a very different era, and I'm handling the book very very differently. But that's another very interesting period of English international football, to say the least. Yeah. And then are we going to have Venables, then Hoddle, then the Golden Generation? Are you going to roll? You're going to roll it right, right through. Do you I think? could not cover cover Venables any better than you have in your excellent tomb. So no, that is where oh, it will kind. end. <laughs> that is where it will uh, end. But I just, I, I think, I think the Robson era is incredible, and I think the Taylor era is incredible for other reasons. Uh, there's mm. some real stories around that time, and. Uh, some incredible games and another <laughs> disastrous performance at Euros with a few caveats in and amongst. So, but I, I'm going to do that one slightly different. I'm talking to various people who were involved in that side and getting a different different perspective on it. So, uh, so yeah, that will be coming up. Hopefully, I'll be announcing something hopefully before the end of the year if I can. <laughs> 
Well, very much looking forward to that. David Hartrick, thanks very much for your time today. Cheers. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.